this. Broadcasting from the historic Habern Building in downtown Louisville, it's time for Single Payer Radio, a project of Kentuckians for Single Payer Healthcare. We're an affiliate of the Kentucky Chapter of Physicians for a National Health Program, and we're a longstanding community partner with Forward Radio WFMP LP 106.5. Just want to let folks know that the views and opinions expressed here on Single Payer Radio are those of the speakers and not the station. And just to remind folks that you can listen to Single Payer Radio on Mondays at 2 p.m., Tuesdays at 7 a.m., and Wednesdays at 11 a.m., if you can't pick up our signal, you can stream us live or go to our SoundCloud here at forwardradio.org. And Mike, just a couple quick notes. Uh, we got some good news that uh, the first of the year that the uh, patients have a new, new billing protections when getting emergency care and non-emergency care from out-of-network providers at in-network facilities and air ambulance services from out-of-network providers. And also, uh, listeners will know that over the past few weeks, we've been talking about the direct contracting entities that are privatizing traditional Medicare and over 50 congresspersons, including John Yarmouth here in Louisville, have called on the Biden administration to end these direct contracting entities. Um, as corporate media outlets are currently leading off their news reports with Russia being posed to take over Ukraine, there's hardly been a whisper in the past few decades about the corporate takeover of our healthcare system, especially Medicare recently. The uh, big Medicare Advantage players keep getting bigger. That's a $412 billion market. The federal government pays Medicare Advantage plans more than $1,000 every month. Uh, and just to remind listeners that with the Medicare Advantage plans, they can limit the doctors and hospitals in your network. There's more pre-authorizations for certain procedures. They spend less on care, but cost taxpayers more than traditional Medicare. And people who enroll in Medicare Advantage often can't buy Medigap insurance or Medigap plans if they decide to switch to traditional Medicare. By the way, United Health reported 2021 profits of 24 billion, that's B with billion, uh, after they took 287 billion from consumers. The average employer-sponsored family policy in 2011 cost an average of a 15,000 a year. Last year, a family employer-sponsored family policy cost 20 to over 22,000, a 47% increase. Plus, we're paying twice as much out of pocket. 
Mike Flynn and Dr. Gene Big Poppy Shively. <laughs> so, so, Mike, I'm going to turn it over. All you. right. Thank you. The only thing I can say about what you said about just welcome to the United States healthcare industry. <clears throat> All right. My name is Michael Flynn. Let me begin with the usual disclosure uh, or disclaimer. Uh, that any comments that I make during this uh, program are my own personal comments and do not re represent uh, the views of the Department of Surgery or the University of Louisville. I'm uh, Dr. Eugene Shavley. I'm a retired general surgeon from Campbellsville, Kentucky. The remarks that I make do not re represent uh, Taylor Regional Hospital nor the uh, Department of Surgery at the University of Louisville. Now, our topic today are, are issues related to the nursing profession, uh, a group that is being slammed in a number of ways, uh, especially with the pandemic, and had a lot of issues going on even before that. We have a special guest today, uh, Suzanne Gordon. Uh, Suzanne uh, was gracious enough to come on our program back in October uh, to talk about VA health issues. Uh, we're very I learned a lot. Very informative program. Suzanne uh, has a has a, a resume as long as my arm. I'm just going to mention a few highlights, and then we're going to let her make some comments. She's a journalist and an author. Has written eleven books on nursing and health, VA health issues. Uh, has had articles in the New York Times, the L.A. Times, the Washington Post and uh, uh, the Journal of the American Medical Association, just to mention a few. Uh, Suzanne, welcome. We're, we're yeah. glad that you're back with us again. <clears throat> and as we've done with uh, previous guests and the last time you were on, we're going to give you an opportunity to make whatever comments you'd like to make about uh, nursing issues in this country today uh, for as long as you want. And then we'll have the, the conversation will begin. Thank you. So I'm a um, healthcare journalist and um, researcher, and I actually have written, written co-edited, or co-authored 21 books. Um, I, I'm just um, coming out with a new book in July that I wrote with my husband, Steve Early, and a, and a colleague, Jasper Craven, um, uh, called Our Veterans. Um, Winners and Losers, Friends and Enemies on the New Terrain of Veterans Affairs. Um, and I would like to mention one little thing maybe at the end about VA. But I've written, I've spent, um, I started writing about nursing um, in 1986-ish. Um, I, I think like most Americans, um, you know, America has discovered nursing in the COVID-19 epidemic. Um, kind of they were there all along. Um, and it shouldn't have taken a pandemic to teach people how important nursing is. Um, my, I, I, I like to say that nursing is the sort of visibly invisible profession I mean, it's kind of like the VA, you know, we all know it exists, but we don't really know what it does. I mean, it's interesting, and I can talk about this later, the parallels between my writing about the VA and my writing about nursing. But um, I grew up in a, my father was a, 
a famous um, a famous doctor. I'm sorry about the phone in the background. Okay, great. Thank you so much. Um, I am. Um, my father was actually a famous doctor. He he he's been dead since 1970, but he developed the use of ACTH and cortisone for inflammatory eye disease. And he was a professor of ophthalmology at Cornell Medical School, in New York Hospital. So. I kind of grew up among the women in white and they were all women and they all wear white, all wore white back then. Um, and because we went to the doctor's dining room, I never knew, really knew anything about nursing. You know, I mean, I knew they were there. I, I mean, I had no idea what they did. Um, my father had a nurse slash secretary who introduced herself as Dr. Gordon's nurse, just like my mother was Mrs. Dan M. Gordon, you know. Um, and it was interesting because she, I never knew anything about her. It turned out that her brother, who had been sort of had a disability from birth, um, was an ex was America's foremost chess chess teacher and taught Bobby Fisher, who some people our age would remember who he Bobby Fisher was. And I, I don't know if Miss Collins knew how to play chess. I, I know nothing about her. You know, it was, it, was, it was just extraordinary. And I began, and then, you know, I, I was raised on television shows like Marcus Well BMD and Ben Casey and all these shows where the doctor did all the caring and, of course, all the curing. And, um, you know, then there was Chicago Hope, which I always call Chicago Hopeless when it comes to nursing. You name it, these shows were awful. And, and basically, the doctors did all the nursing and nurses were just kind of there for color. And I discovered nurses when I had my first uh, child in the hospital in 1984. And my friend who was my OB, um, she was you know, basically nowhere. And it was the nurses who got me through the back labor. I mean, she did come in and help get the baby out. And then in my four days in the hospital, and those were the days when women had four days in the hospital, not four minutes. Um, you know, the nurses really got me through teaching me how to take care of my baby. And, you know, my friend, the doctor, Dolores, would sort of bop in every once in a while, but she's pretty much irrelevant. Um, it's interesting because my daughter <clears throat> just had a baby um, and she had a placental abruption, which for your listeners is a catastrophic complication of pregnancy. And she was very fortunate to be um, near a Kaiser and get in right away and had an emergency C-section and the baby was born uh, six weeks premature and spent three weeks on the NICU in the neonatal ICU. And the nurses were just amazing. I mean, the doctors were fine, you know, but it was the nurses who did everything. Um, and, and, you know, um, I discovered nursing, I shouldn't have had to, had to know what, I mean, I didn't need doctors to know that doctors were important. You know, I didn't need to be have surgery when I was 20 to know that doctors were important. You grew up in a culture where doctors were gods and they were important and so forth. But um, you did need to be in the hospital pretty much to know what nurses did because nobody in the media told you medicine pretty much dominated dominated and still dominates the media image of nursing until COVID. Um, and um, I began, 
after I had my baby in the hospital, um, my first baby, I realized, wow, I have things wrong. You know, like I don't, I didn't, I don't have the correct image of healthcare. And, um, and you know, it, it's very hard for people to have the correct image of healthcare in this, in the world that we live in, because even if you pay attention to nurses, nurses want you to think that they're the only important people on the stage. You know, there's this extremely competitive view of healthcare, which is really not correct because it just like it takes a village to raise a child, it takes a village to take care of a sick person or even to keep people from getting sick. And um, in our dominant framework, you know, nurses are competing against doctors and nurses are constantly saying there's, they're the ones to solve the healthcare crisis and you should give them all the power. And in fact, I don't agree with that. I think that we need a collaborative model because, and we can get into this later, in healthcare toxic hierarchy is a gift that keeps on giving. And, um, you know, doctors refer to nurses as physician extenders and nurses refer to nursing aides as nurse extenders. And we have this kind of Adam's, Adam's rib view of healthcare which denies people their agency and also the role that they play. I mean, uh, you're, you guys, I mean, one of you is a surgeon, right? And I mean, Jean, you can do the best surgery in the world, but if those health housekeepers don't disinfect the room, right, you know, the patient's kind of in big trouble. And if the pharmacists don't do it and the nurses and the nurses aides and the dietitians and so forth. Um, and it's very, I think it's extremely difficult for, people raised in our society to give each other credit and to say I'm different rather than better. And you see this in, in, in nursing as well as in, as in medicine. Um, so I began writing about nursing um, in, after my first baby was born. Um, I spent three years in the Beth Israel Hospital in Boston when it was a standalone hospital and a great hospital and had an amazing management structure where there was a, a partnership between the CEO of the hospital who was the doctor and the chief nurse who was nurse. And they developed this model of primary nursing where a patient, they developed a model where a patient would be followed by a nurse as, as much as possible, a primary nurse throughout their hospital stay and of course, that was easy back in the 90s when people stayed in the hospital for more than 40 hours um, or, uh, and um, called life support, three nurses on the front lines. And then I wrote a book called Nursing Against the Odds. Um, oh, my God, I wonder if I can. And the subtitle was Nursing's Relationship to Medicine, the Media and all kinds of stereotypes about nursing. And then I've done a lot of work on helping nurses tell their story because nurses, nurses don't talk about their work um, or when they do talk about it, they talk about it in very sentimentalized ways. I mean, it's interesting because the COVID epidemic has replaced one stereotype of the nurse um, the angel nurse, the caring nurse, with another stereotype, which is the hero nurse, 
And none of those stereotypes are, of course, accurate. And what I think is really important is that nurses tell their stories and, <clears throat> and that they do it in a way that uh, shows their knowledge and skill. Um, nurses aren't heroes, unfortunately, like doctors today or anybody who works in healthcare, because we, we have no public health system and, and we don't have a collaborative health system uh, and we don't give nurses the pay and respect and working conditions they deserve, you have to kind of be a hero to go into a hospital today, no matter who you are. You know, um, I, I'm supposed to have a first meeting with a primary care, a new primary care doctor today. And I was enormously relieved when they announced that it would be virtual, you know, because I don't want to go near anyone that I don't have to go near. But um I mean, there's just lots to talk about in nursing. I, I think nursing culture um, is, got a, is, is got a lot of flaws. I mean, anybody who thinks that women, if women were in charge, they would do better than men should just look at nursing culture to see how far that myth gets you, you know, and we can talk about that. Um, nursing is dominated by <clears throat> management um, which is why we have the conditions that we have today. And also, you know, another reason why we have the conditions that we have today is that doctors, and I think this is really scandalous, don't know what nurses do. And when nurses try to get um, safe, have tried to get safe staffing ratios so that they can take better care of the doctor's patients, because the doctors don't conceptualize the patient as our patient, they conceptualize the patient as my patient. Um, doctors don't come out and fight to support nurses, which is fighting to support their patients. They often either stay silent or they oppose these rate, these efforts to get staffing ratios. And I think that's really tragic. Um, on the subject of doctors, and please don't think I, you know, some of my best friends are doctors. Um, I think the medical model, and I know you probably all agree, is pretty much a terrible model um, as it is in American society. It's hierarchical, patriarchal, et cetera. But um, <clears throat> I think that, you know, I don't think the nursing model is much better. It just substitutes another matriarch as you were, as it were, for the patriarch. But um, <clears throat> I, one of the things that sticks in my mind um, very much because it is kind of like America's reaction to nursing today in the COVID epidemic. Um, Arnold Relman, Bud Relman, who was, you know, the, one of the enormously famous medical leaders. Um, he was an editor of the New England Journal of Medicine. And um, he, he wrote an article. It's really worth looking up because it's so extraordinary. I think he was God, he was 91, I think. And he, um, I had been on a number of shows with him. And um, one of the things that as a, as a, as a non-nurse, but as a woman, one of the things that always happens when you're on a radio show like this, this is, this is quite different what you're running. But often if I'm on a radio show with a doctor, the rate, the host will, sort of privilege the doctor, whether it's a female or a male doctor, by calling that doctor, Dr. Jones or Dr. Smith, and me, I'm Suzanne, you know. 
Um, and I, um, I was on a couple of shows with Relman and always would have to establish with the host that if he's going to be Dr. Relman, I'm going to be Ms. Gordon or Professor Gordon. And if I'm going to be Suzanne, he has to be Bud, you know, and of course he never wanted to be Bud. So we, I always insisted on this, but anyway, he wrote this article and he had had a terrible fall, ended up in the ICU for, for something like a month and then in the hospital. And he wrote this article. So he's like 91, I, I think he was 91. He was very old. And um, he suddenly discovered nursing, right? I mean, he's flat on his back in an ICU and then in the hospital. And he discovers two things. One, <clears throat> gee, nurses are important. Wow, who knew? And two, that doctors aren't really very nice to patients and don't tell patients much. And um, I thought to myself, okay, so he's 91 or whatever he was, and he probably graduated medical school when he was 26 or seven. So it took him 70 years, you know, 60 years to figure this out. I mean, if every doctor has to end up in an ICU to figure out that nursing is important, we're really in trouble. And if the society has to depend on a pandemic, you know, to figure out nursing is important, we're in trouble. And the reason why we're in the kind of trouble we are, I mean, there's many, many reasons, but when it comes to nursing is it's way too late, you know, to discover the importance of nursing or medicine or retail clerks or public health when you're in the middle of a crisis. You know, you really need to prepare. It's, it's the same thing with the primary care crisis, right, for primary care doctors and providers. Um, and we don't have enough nurses. Uh, we don't have enough hospitals. We don't have, um, we don't uh, give nurses the, the pay and the working conditions they need. Um, there was an article in the New York Times yesterday about Mississippi having a shortage of nurses. Really, how surprising is that? You know, a state that treats nurses kind of like slaves. Um, they don't, nurses don't want to stay in the state and so forth. So <clears throat> I think we have a huge healthcare workforce crisis in America. Um, yeah, and Suzanne, and for those for all of those reasons, that's why we wanted to have uh, you come on and we wanted to talk about these uh, these nursing issues. Uh, as a matter of full disclosure, both Jean and I are surgeons and we're both married to nurses. Oh, so yeah. we, <laughs> we 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 have been hearing a lot of these things you've said. And so we're good to go. Gene, do you want to start the, 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 the question? Gene's got a couple of interesting questions for you about some of the things that he's found out about you. Uh, well, I, I agree with you and all that you just said. And I was reading an article uh, in Meditech uh, just uh, a few days ago and where they had done a survey of a, a, a bunch of large group of nurses. And I thought that, that one of the biggest gripes was going to be the relationship between doctors and nurses, but that's not, was not number one. The number one gripe was administration, yeah. uh, not just a, a nursing administration, but administration of the hospital. And, uh, 
the gripe with physicians was way down on the totem pole. And I think that's the, the uh, number one gripe of uh, many uh, physicians is uh, uh, administration. Nurses are overwhelmed uh, with paperwork and they don't have time uh, to nurse like they used to. I mean, you want, can you comment a little bit about uh, the waste of time nurses do on paperwork and computers and uh, I completely uh, administration? Agree. I completely agree. Um, I think doctors and nurses share more and more in today's corporatized healthcare world, or it's really, can you call it healthcare anymore? You know, corporatized health delivery, whatever health sales world. Um, and I think that too much paperwork, you know, dealing with the computer. I mean, the nurse has the same problem that the doctor does, you know, um, you're, you have to do all this work and there's, there's no accommodation in your workload for that work. I mean, the computer has essentially become another patient that healthcare professionals have to deal with. And, you know, um, and that's why, and it's becoming really arduous and there's no accommodation made in the workload. And of course, actually, it's almost the opposite because every patient that you add, like for physicians for their patient panel or for a nurse for the patient they're caring for in a bed or in, in the home or whatever, you have to add on that paperwork workload. So, you know, it's if you have, if you have, if you as a physician are seeing 30 patients a day or 25 or however many, you know, it's, 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 it, you have to multiply that. Um, by the, the paperwork and the computer work that that extra patients or that number of patients demand. And, you know, when they introduce computers into the nursing, <clears throat> into the nurse's duties, um, you know, they, they claim that the computer would somehow make it easier and, 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 um, and actually make less work. And it's, of course, made more work. I mean, I want to tell you a really funny story about computers, because this just shows that, you know, the issue of administrators, I mean, if, I mean, it's, if you had administrators who understood the nature of the work, then they might administer differently, right? Or if you had administrators who weren't serving sort of essentially corporate masters. Um, but a friend of mine was a, an orthopedic nurse at UCSF, and they put in the, the computer system. And then they decided that they were going to put the computers in the patient's rooms. So rather than consulting the nurses about where in the patient's room might they put the computer, and I think the story is emblematic of the whole problem, they just went ahead and spent a lot of money putting the computer's in a space right at the entry of the room, right behind the door. So the nurse would be standing at the door and somebody would open the door and the door would whack the nurse standing and entering stuff into the computer. And they got so many injuries from the nurse getting whacked in the door that they ended up having to change the system. But this is the problem, you know, nobody asks, nurses, how many patients can you handle? They will tell you, you know, how should you do your work? 
How can it be more effective? What, what, can you, what can we do to help you? And I think this is just true everywhere in healthcare. Um, and, and when you start asking frontline people how you can redesign the work, then you know, they tell you we need safe ratios. They'll tell you how many. It's very interesting, this whole fight about safe, safe ratios, safe nurse-patient ratios, which is, is, is another place, um, Gene, that, that your comment is, proves, um, which has been opposed by nurse administrators, right? It is, it is nurse and hospital administration that has lined up to oppose these ratios that nurses have fought for. The only place they've won them is in California and um, in, well, in this Australia, they now have them everywhere, but it initially um, in the nineties, they won them in California and it was the, uh, the, California Nurses Association, which is now the National Nurses United, uh, won these ratios. I, I tell the story of how they won it in the first edition of the book that I wrote with Bernice Baresh called From Silence to Voice, What Nurses Know and Must Communicate to the Public. And we tell the story about that fight. And then I wrote a book called Safety in Numbers with a couple of colleagues actually in Australia. And we tell this a, a longer story of how they won these in California and the state of Victoria and Australia. And what was interesting in Australia was they came up on, with the ratios um, by asking nurses and even nurse managers, please tell us how many nurses you need, you know, to care for patients safely. Tell us exactly the truth. Don't give us a higher number. You know, don't tell us you need a ratio of, of one to one on a med surge unit, be, because you think if you tell us one to one, you'll get one to four, tell us exactly what you need. And, and they did, they told them, you know, one to four, whatever. Um, I mean, if we had those ratios today, we would then produce enough nurses, um, you know, to fill those ratios, and we wouldn't have you know, hospital, the situation we have in hospitals today. I mean, you also clearly in a pandemic, if you're going to staff appropriately, um, you know, you have to staff, you have to produce even more nurses, you know, for this incredible situation where you might have, you know, quarter them out, quarter them out with an infection, right? So, um, but hospitals, you know, haven't wanted to do that. It, it, you know, they, they, they have abided by the same just-in-time supply chain of nurses that they do to, to computer chips and, and so forth. And then actually to um, importing nurses, you know, rather than bringing, creating homegrown nurses, they're poaching nurses We've always poached nurses from other places in the world, and now we're doing it again, you know, when those places need nurses more than ever before. I mean, it's a serious, serious problem, as you know. I mean, it, the same is true of nursing assistants and nursing home aides, you know. I mean, we're now sending the National Guard, you know, to be nursing assistants. I mean, this is, this pandemic has, has just illustrated um, every flaw in the American healthcare system of which yes, it's fundamental. Yeah. The, the fundamental issue here, uh, as you both you and Jane have alluded to is, is that we, we have a healthcare industry 
uh, which is focused on extracting profit from the system as opposed to a healthcare system that's focused on providing health care. Exactly. And, um, between the mid 1970s and the mid 2010s, there has been an astonishing over 3,000% increase in the number of administrators in healthcare in this country. And all of the issues that you've been talking about uh, have got to do with this issue that there are 10, count them, 10 administrators to every practicing physician in American healthcare. And, you know, uh, just to give you, you know, some of the other examples, the electronic health records, and, and the computer issues is, is, is one component of it. Now, Gene, I don't know if you can remember, I, when I, I retired three years ago in the last 10 years of my clinical practice, I was doing endocrine surgery, and most of that was outpatient. So I wasn't spending a lot of time in the hospital. But before that, I, was, I, had, I did a lot of, of cancer surgery. And I spent a lot of time in, in hospitals and ICUs and places like that having patients taken care of and, and dealing with and seeing the nursing issues. Now, back in the 90s, if I remember correctly, not only were there nurses, but there were nurse assistants. There were there were there were there was um, what, what did they call the, the 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 person that was there just doing the administrative stuff? Uh, ward clerk. Ward clerks. Yes. And so they all now these people are gone. I don't. I never haven't. I don't. I don't think ward clerks exist anymore. Yeah, but, they 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 still do in some places. Yeah, but the these administrative decisions were made uh, uh, focusing on on the bottom line, not focusing on providing care. So my wife just recently retired as a VA operating room nurse, and one of the things that you alluded to, Suzanne, in terms of the the supply issue, and this is this was in this was in the VA, and she worked in one of the local hospitals in 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 Louisville before before that, and the the this the supplies of of equipment that were needed in the operating room were were literally as time went on they just didn't they did they didn't have a bunch of excess capacity there and and a lot of this had to do with the focus of of the not of the provision of care but of the financial issues in the system and and the goal of extracting profit instead of instead of providing uh, providing care. What what are your thoughts about, um, uh, you, you know, you talk about the staffing shortage shortages and the burnout. Um, <clears throat> when I first came to Louisville in the 1970s, most of the hospitals, many of the hospitals had their own nursing schools. And they, the nurses learned floor nursing, uh, bedside nursing. They were focused on that. There was there was maybe one administrator and the chief nurse, and 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 and, the, and and then that was it. Today, the administrative staff in in the local hospitals 
Uh, you can't you can't figure out who, who they all are. They have somebody in charge of advertising, somebody in charge of recruiting physicians, because physician groups now work in these healthcare systems that are that are run by hospitals. Uh, but anyhow, from your in your research and background, where do you what what sort of issues? What, how would you deal with the nursing staffing shortages in today that where these hospitals no longer have nursing schools because they would get the nurses, they would train the nurses and the nurses would work in the hospitals. Now, let me just add before you, you, you answer that question is that they were called diploma schools and um, they had one at Norton's and they had one at uh, Baptist. And when those nurses finished after three years, uh, they had spent a huge amount of time on the floors and they knew exactly what to do. And they were, yes, uh, were nurses. Well, you know, I mean, I think this, this is a broader point in healthcare education. Um, the United States, I mean, I'm not an expert on this, but in other countries, you know, I mean, certainly in France, I know France and um, other countries, you don't need a, I mean, you don't need a, four-year degree to become a physician. You know, in France, it's a six-year degree and you just go right in. You, you don't need a university education to become a nurse. Um, so, I mean, I would argue that um, one way to, to get medical school debt down is, you know, why do doctors should just go in, learn the basic sciences and, and become doctors and you probably do it in six years. Um, and nurses in the same. I mean, I think you've gone in, in, in all healthcare, quote unquote, professions. I mean, some of them obviously didn't exist many, many years ago from an apprenticeship system, which, which is kind of what the hospital school was to a university system. Um, I mean, you know, does a, does a surgeon need to take philosophy courses or I, I don't know, you know, an extra language? Maybe they do in America with Spanish, but I don't, you're never going to get the hospital schools back. I mean, I think that you need to figure out what the educational track should be. Should it be, you know, now because of the competition with medicine, nursing so-called leaders have decided that a nurse practitioner has to get a doctorate in a four-year degree. I think that's absolutely ridiculous. Um, and the, it just makes more money for the nursing schools. And, and um, you know, now you have a competition of who should be called doctor, you know. Um, I think, you know, doctors should be the MD and you should call the nurses Nurse Jones, you know. I mean, that's a whole other thing. This first name thing in America drives me nuts. You know, I, I, I mean, I'm, I'm a 76-year-old woman and some, you know, doctor walks in the room and says, hi, I'm Dr. Smith. How are you, Suzanne? You know, and I, that just doesn't work for me. But, and they call the nurse Joan and, and, and they're the, you know, Dr. Smith. I, I, I don't like that either. Um, but that's all, you know, in relationship to this hierarchy. And, you know, hierarchy, I mean, I think that the COVID crisis has made the issue of, of, of staffing, of workload, of, of paperwork really critical, but we shouldn't ignore the issue of teamwork and, and 
you know, the, the inability for folks to, to really take that seriously. Maybe things are better. I mean, I haven't really looked at relationships between doctors and nurses during COVID. Maybe this crisis has, has had a leveling effect, which it, that's a sort of interesting sociological question. I mean, I just think that the, you know, the the what you talk about with administration, I mean, it's the same thing in terms of what David Hemmelstein and Steffi Wohendler have, have so long illuminated. You know, 30% of our healthcare dollars going to administrating marketing and profit, you know, you know, 10% going to fraud and abuse. I mean, you have, you know, whatever, there's a huge amount of waste. Um, that there's a, a, I think a view, I mean, you see the same thing with prime, the shortage of primary care doctors, of mental health professionals, I mean, even general surgeons. I mean, you know, I'd love to interview you about that. I mean, we, we have, we seem to have this notion that is like just, you know, just in time supply, you know, that there's this hot and cold running water of doctors, nurses, primary care doctors, nursing assistants, and you just turn the faucet on and they come out and you turn it off. And then, you know, when you don't want it and, you know, they don't realize that it takes, you know, what, four to six years to produce a nurse that can, can work functionally on a floor. It takes 10 years to produce a, a doctor, whatever, you know, a mental health professional, a psychologist, you can't just suddenly decide, oh, my God, you know, we should order some more chips from China. You know, um, it, it doesn't work that way. And, and, you know, it's called planning. And, it, and, and, and you've mentioned this, you know, if your if your medical industry or your healthcare industry <clears throat> is planning to produce profits, well, they do a very good job. But if it's planning to produce patient care, if it's planning to produce health, that's planning to produce a good death. They don't know how to do that. And they, and they, and then, you know, if you talk about planning, it's socialism. I mean, I think we have to completely reimagine our healthcare system um, and, and try to fight, you know, for a healthcare system that has the right number of facilities in the right places to serve everyone with the right amount of professionals. I mean, we have a complete maldistribution of physicians in this country, you know? Um, uh, what is it, 15% or 20% of people going into primary care? Congress has completely abdicated control. Um, it won't say, you know, it, 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 we, we don't have enough money for the amount of doctors we need to produce, or if we have the right amount of money, it's now distributed, you know? Well, again, this is, this is the healthcare industry. Uh, years ago, uh, there was a surgeon in Louisville, whose name I won't mention, who had some vision problems, and he, his, he was a general surgeon. He, he, he went out of practice and ran for public office. And he became a member of the uh, House of Representatives representing an area where he lived. And he came to the Louisville Surgical Society. And this has got to be 20 years ago and gave a really good talk, told us that one, uh, the business of making laws was like making sausage, which we've all heard before. And the other thing he said, uh, which was very, very telling, was that, that the, the politicians He's but he'd been in he'd been in the House of Representatives for four or five years or so. Don't have any idea. They just don't understand health care. Don't have any understanding of it. Uh, Gene, let me ask you now. 
the Atul Gawande. Can do you can you summarize the activities that went on between Berkshire Hathaway? Yeah, really. And those other three companies and, and the conclusion that they came to after three years of that, that, that study that they put together or those activities to try to figure out how they could improve healthcare in this country. Vagande is a surgeon from Boston and um, is also an author and has uh, written for the New York Times and has become a fairly famous uh, doctor. And he took over this company, and the plan was uh, to try to build a healthcare system in the private industry uh, with three companies uh, that that in would the private work. industry model, right? Mm-hmm. A, a model, yeah. and uh, it, it included uh, 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 one of the big banks in uh, New York, uh, Birthway Hathaway, and. Uh, uh, a very large company in uh, Seattle. And after two and a half years, they came to the conclusion (coughs) that it was impossible to do without government intervention. Um, And so they shut the company down. Yeah. The scary thing about that is if you look at what's going on with our government today, I I don't I can't see any any prospect of of them getting together to do anything like that in in any 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 time soon. It took Japan uh, ten years to to uh, transition from the kind of um, uh, healthcare industry functional uh, uh, system to the um, the universal single system that they've got in Japan today. So. Oh, well, I mean, I, you know, I think it says a lot about Atul Gawande that he took this incredible ability to write and put it in the service of working with Berkshire Hathaway, J.P. Morgan Chase and Amazon. Yeah. Those were the three companies. So that, you know, the, the, the Amazon, the biggest healthcare. I mean, how can a, a surgeon like Atul Gawande work with Jeff Bezos, one who has probably one of the worst records in healthcare and how you deal with workers. You want to fix healthcare, you want to fix costs. (coughs) Try having fewer occupational injuries. You know, um, I'm a fan of Atul Gawande and, um, you know, I think he's very corporate. He's made a lot of money. You know, physician greed is part of, I mean, not, not all, not all, but, you know, there's a lot of greed that fuels this system and physicians are part of that, just as all of us are part of it. But I think that, you know, I mean, one of the, one of the stories that I thought was the most interesting when it comes to teamwork that Gawande ever did for the New Yorker, I think was called personal best. And I've written about this a lot uh, where he, um, he decides that, and, and these will be really interesting to you too as surgeons, but he decides that, you know, he really needs to up his game as a surgeon. And, um, and, and he says, you know, athletes, if they want to up their game, they get these kind of, you know, elite coaches to come in and, and he brings in some surgeon that he considers, you know, above him. So somebody that he is willing to listen to. And he, this surgeon sort of um, uh, 
observes his practice and sees that, you know, essentially his, the problems that he has in the OR are around teamwork. You know, he doesn't listen to people. He pushes people out of the way. So he can't see what they're doing. The surgical tech can't do this. This one can't do that. And he basically says, and this is really, you know, astounding. And this is the elitism in healthcare. He says, you know, I had to get this, you know, fancy surgeon who is senior to me, who I respect because, because there's nobody else in the OR that can, you know, make observations about my actions. And I'm like, hello, there are all these people there that if you just ask them, you know, how to, how to, how you could improve or how you, we could all improve would tell you. And, you know, but it's, it's like this administrative problem. I mean, you have to get, you know, you have to get the frontline staff involved. You have to get them all involved and you have to ask them what they need to do their jobs better. And there's an assumption, I think, in healthcare that, you know, there's some people who do mindful work and there's some people who do mindless work. You see the same in nursing, you know, nurses, if you talk to a nurse's assistant or an LVN, a licensed vocational or practical nurse, she will talk about RNs, registered nurses, exactly the way RNs talk about MDs, you know. I mean, people do not have collaborative relationships with each other. And then you have administration and and the healthcare industry obsession with profit overlaid on this system, and it's bound to create serious problems. I mean, I think the thing that we need in healthcare, I mean, we need so much but, you know, um, when it comes to nursing, I mean, I'd love to bring a bunch of nurses, doctors, nursing aides, you know, the whole crew into a room and, and, and just sit them down and say, okay, you know, you have three days, we're not opening the door, you can go to the bathroom, you can go to sleep, you can eat dinner together, together, you're all going to be around the table, you're all going to be on a first name basis, and you're all going to speak and you have a really great facilitator. And, what do you need to do your work efficiently, you know? And, and I, I bet you they won't say we need, you know, 10 administrators to each one of us. I bet you, you know. You know, when, just to, to make a comment about your issue about what's going on in the operating room, when I had to have my hernia repaired about six years ago, the last pe- person I was going to ask about who should be doing my hernia repair were other surgeons. <laughs> so. There were two groups of people I asked. One were operating room nurses because they they're in there watching what's going on. And the other two were were residents. And I I got uh, a series of recommendations and uh, they they all fundamentally focused on one person whose name I'm not going to mention. But I, I didn't go to a source because most surgeons don't know what the other surgeons are doing uh, because they're not in the operating room with them. And, and there's a lot of, a lot of that. Uh, we're, we're getting close to the end of the lollipop here. So I just given you a warning. I think Mark's been waving five fingers at me. So uh, one of the things that, that before we end is collaborative care, which I think is very important. And one of the things that I've observed is that, uh, like in one hospital, you can have in one department very happy nurses, uh, 
and doctors who are working together very nicely. And then on another department, you can have very unhappy nurses. Yes. And absolutely. I've observed that the, probably the reason for that is their managers and um, uh, how their immediate supervisors are dealing with them. And I also know of a hospital where uh, the, the pay is not as good, but uh, the nurses and respiratory therapists, et cetera, all love to work there because they like the people and they like the managers. At the other hospital, they're unhappy because of their nursing uh, management. And I, th I think that uh, one of the things hospitals need to work at is, is management and there needs to be a personal relationship with these managers. You don't need people sitting behind the desk communicating with text messages and emails and not even know who they are. And that's that needs to stop. Well, well the problem is it, it, it isn't it not only is it not going to stop, it's, it's getting worse. Yes. Because and, when you've got private equity companies buying up nursing homes, pharmacies, physician practices and everything else they can get their hands on that that administrative uh, a circumstance, the corporatocracy of, of running medicine is 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 worse. Yes, absolutely. I'll give you an example of that. I uh, try to uh, uh, get involved in wound care and some nursing homes, and uh, the local manager could not make a decision. It was being made by, uh, by a corporate entity that lived miles away and had absolutely no idea what was going on at that nursing home or uh, my skills or or, or anything about the nursing home. And it was like a, uh, a big business uh, decision. And every time uh, we try to come up with a solution, it's always a high-tech solution. Uh, instead of a simple solution like sitting down at the bedside and talking to the patient. Right. Uh, Suzanne, we're, we're, down to, we're down to the end of the lollipop here. Two minutes, I think. Okay, yeah. if you were the queen of the country, and you had to pick three things that you would you would you could you could you could do as as the dictator, a benevolent dictator, queen, or whatever you want to be, to fix healthcare in the country. What what two or three things would you would how what would you say? Number one, number two, and number three. Well, I think number one would be um, to have a payment system. Um, you know, some kind of single payer payment system and to ban profit, you know, from healthcare, we shouldn't have for profit hospitals, we should, I, I absolutely agree, we should not have private equity, I mean, it's getting worse, you know, I mean, private equity, I mean, is even worse than the usual for profit, it needs to be local, um, I think you need to have real coordination of care. That's why I like the VA because when it works best, the care is coordinated and we could talk about that. I mean, that's, that's a very important issue. Most people don't understand what that is because they've never experienced it. You know, I certainly have. And I, and I think that you have to have 
you know, workforce solutions developed by the workforce. Suzanne, uh, thank you very much. Uh, I think we're, we're done. We, 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 we enjoyed having you on as always. Your, <laughs> your comments are interesting <laughs> and, 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 and to make attentive. Mark is about to make his final comments here and we're going to, we're going to end. Well, Suzanne, one last thing. Can you tell our listeners if you have a website or or an address where they can reach out and get more information? Sure. Um, my website is SuzanneGordon.com. Uh, if you want to look at my work um, in, in healthcare reform in the VA, it's the Veterans Healthcare Policy Inter- Institute, um, veteranspolicy.org. Um, you can reach me through my website. Um, I, I've written a lot of books. You can go look at them, preferably buy them from an independent bookstore instead of Amazon. Um, and I think that there's a, a lot that can be done. I think a show like this is really invaluable. Uh, and I really am, am very appreciative that you've had me on for a second time. Um, and I, I love this kind of conversation. And imagine if this kind of conversation could take place with lots of different healthcare workers. Imagine uh, what, a, what amazing solutions we would come up with. Good deal. Thank you very much. For folks who want to learn more about Kentuckians for single-payer healthcare, you can go to kyhealthcare.org. If you'd like to reach out to our chairperson, that's nurse N-P-O at AOL.com. That's Katello's uh, address, nursenpo at aol.com. The group also has a Facebook page. Uh, Kay and, and uh, Harriet uh, keep doing their uh, Twitter accounts. So uh, we will s- see you guys again next week. Suzanne, thank you very much. Thank you so much.